This is R.J. Rushdooney, Easy Chair Number 108, October the 28th, 1985. Sometimes, as I read the daily paper and news magazines, I wonder at the insanity, I guess that's the only word we can use for it, and sin that prevails in high places. I sometimes feel also that if I began to make sense out of the news, it would mean that the, my mind was going. For example, some of the news coming out of Washington can be summed up, for example, in the U.S. News and World Report, October 21, 1985, page 35. The article entitled, A New Try at Curing World's Debt Troubles. Well, that sounds like a good title, and there have been many such titles in other magazines and in the papers. The debt owed us, and to European countries as well, by many of the third world debtors is enormous. It is a problem because it is threatening to destroy the economy of the whole world, to put us all into a total disaster. Well, they're going to try to cure the world's debt problems. And how? This sentence tells it all. I quote, Commercial banks in the U.S. and elsewhere would hike less developed countries' lending by $20 billion over three years. Unquote. So the answer to the fact that these countries are unable to pay their debts is to increase the giving by 20 billion more. Now, if that makes sense to you, you are in trouble. But that's the kind of thing that increasingly marks politics the world over. It is a willful violation of the law of God. It is, in effect, saying we shall be as God, and our own fiat word will create reality, that what we say goes will go. And the result, the world over, is a growing disaster. Then, for October the 28th, 1985, the U.S. News and World Report on page 54 has an article, Expert Advice, Keep Control of Family Fun. One paragraph in this article that deals with the growing problem of child delinquency is this, and I quote, If strong family or church life is absent, what other moral influences are there, asks Robert Coles, Harvard child psychiatrist and author of the soon-to-be-published The Moral Life of Children. Children take what they see in movies to be the adult world in operation. They tell you that, unquote. Very well put. And our problem today is that not even Christians are aware of what's going on.
They are indifferent to the entertainment of their children. They will allow rock and roll in the house, punk rock, acid rock, any kind of rock. And their children begin to dress in the garb of these rock and roll people, uh, some of it a code form of uh, the drug culture. And the parents are not in the least bit upset. Instead, as I've heard some say, I'm trying to understand my children so there can be rapport between us. The blindness of so many Christians as to what is happening the world over is appalling. Moreover, with it there is a self-righteousness which in effect says, if you condemn any evil, somehow there is something morally wrong with you. In Christianity Today for October 18, 1985, there is a guest editorial by Cornelius Platinga, Jr., who teaches at Calvin Theological Seminary. The title is The Justification of Rock Hudson. The subtitle, AIDS Has a Dual Message for Christians. And his points are essentially two. The first, serious Christians are reminded by the AIDS phenomenon that God is not mocked. When someone sins, someone pays. Well, very good. But then, he says, second, the current furor is a nutrient for growing Christian smugness. Now, I get a great many Christian periodicals, but I don't recall seeing any smugness over the AIDS problem. What uh, Platinge has in mind appears in the last two paragraphs. I quote, But it is an even greater mistake to underestimate and regret the reach of divine compassion. Sin is not acceptable to God. Repentant sinners are. The word for accepting sinners is justification, a health benefit of the painful work of our Lord. Tainted people come clean by faith and the transfusion of Christ's blood. The terrible irony in all this is worth pondering. God has justification for the ungodly who cling to Christ. He has none for the self-righteous, unquote. Out of this article, you get the uh, clear impression, and I've given it to two other people to read, and they agreed. Namely, if you are against AIDS, and if you are against homosexuality, you are somehow self-righteous. Moreover, the statement, God has justification for the ungodly who cling to Christ, is nonsense. For sinners who cling to Christ, not ungodly, if they come to Christ, if they cling to him, and if they have justification, they are no longer ungodly. This is the type of moral confusion that is so prevalent in our time. And... It leads to very serious problems as we try to deal with the future. Disarmed men, morally disarmed men, 
who are afraid to say that homosexuality is wrong or abortion is wrong or adultery is wrong for fear they will be called self-righteous are worthless to God. Given Platongay's standard, you'd have to call the prophets of Scripture and the apostles of the New Testament self-righteous. Certainly they condemned sin and sinners in no unmistakable terms. There is a good statement in the fall 1985 journal, The Public Interest, in an article by James Q. Wilson, The Rediscovery of Character, Private Virtue and Public Policy. Now among the experts, James Q. Wilson is better than most. What he writes on crime makes excellent sense. Although sometimes, if I may be pardoned for being a bit cynical, an expert is somebody who tells you that if you jump off a cliff, you're going to hit bottom. That's a good expert. A questionable expert is one who says, well, we must get 20 men to jump off and see if it happens 20 times out of 20. Or perhaps it'll take a better sampling before our experiment will permit us to say that if you jump off a cliff, you'll hit bottom. Well, I don't mean to be disrespectful of James Q. Wilson. I do think he's a very able man. But he concludes his article with this telling statement. In the long run, the public interest depends on private virtue. Let me repeat. In the long run, the public interest depends on private virtue. I was very glad to see that because I had just read a statement by a very prominent fundamentalist theologian, which was no different from that of a modernist theologian, the gist of which was, if we protect our American institutions, they will provide us with a framework for continuing liberty, as though public virtue is created by a framework of law. That's nonsense. That's paganism. Wilson has it right. Public virtue depends on private morality. Now on to something else from Reason for November 1985. And I quote, because this is the kind of thing that makes clear that until there is some private morality, there isn't going to be much public virtue. I quote, Philadelphia Judge Alexander McCombs dismissed murder charges against three men, including two who had been extradited from other states because a prosecutor was not on time for a hearing. 
After lunch, the eminent jurist also dismissed murder charges against a Philadelphia man who police said confessed to a killing after being found covered with blood. Assistant District Attorney Roger King was in another courtroom down the hall when Macones turned the alleged murderers loose. I made sure courtroom personnel told the judge I was busy with another case, says King. But when the defense attorneys protested King's absence at the hearing, Macones dropped the charges. How many bites of the apple does Mr. King want? The robed idiot mumbled as he turned loose the three altar boys, unquote. Well, that kind of thing I hear about regularly and from some of you who send in clippings to me of things like that that happen locally. In the same issue of Reason, there is another interesting article. The road to Ethiopia is paved with good intentions. The gist of it is that foreign aid to Africa has done nothing but help destroy it. He cites several authorities, including this, and I quote, a critique of foreign aid from a quite different perspective recently appeared in the Atlantic Monthly. Jack Shepard, senior associate at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and a specialist on food aid in Africa, rejects the efforts by African bureaucrats to lay the blame for their continent and its uh, straits solely on Western shoulders. Shepard notes that a confluence of unfortunate events, including African government policies that have promoted industrialization at the expense of food production, and harmful Western food aid have placed Africa in its desperate position. How desperate? Shepard reports that 150 million Africans from 26 nations are in need of emergency food aid. Shepard adduces some damning evidence. While the West poured $22.5 billion in development aid into sub-Saharan Africa in the 1970s. Per capita food production in that region fell by an average of 1.2% a year during the decade. Much of this Western aid never reached those for whom it was intended. Shepard notes that of the $7.5 billion given to eight West African nations during the 70s, only 12% reached rural areas. The preponderance of Western aid is spent foolishly by African governments on what the World Bank calls white elephants, large-scale projects that enhance politicians' prestige but have exceedingly low rates of return, unquote. And so it goes. Some years ago, I recall reading an account of the circle of a bishop who was also a poet, a prominent Roman poet of his day. He was an aristocrat. He moved in very fine aristocratic circles in southern Gaul, 
where a number of prominent families had villas and lived very well indeed. When Rome fell, these people were momentarily shocked, but they went on living as usual in the confidence that civilization, having reached the height it had, would not retreat, would not go back. And they had no awareness of the night that was going to close in upon them very soon. This is the same kind of blindness that marks so many today. And in this situation, the churches, Catholic and Protestant, speak with an uncertain trumpet, with an uncertain sound. We are used to thinking of the Catholic Church as authoritarian, but that's ancient history. About a year ago, the Holy Office, under its prefect, Cardinal Ratzinger, prepared a document. That document, besides condemning liberation theology had a paragraph, really two paragraphs, dealing with the communist regime. So I'm going to quote those to you. A major fact of our time ought to evoke the reflection of all those who would sincerely work for the true liberation of their brothers. Millions of our own contemporaries legitimately yearned to recover those basic freedoms of which they were deprived by totalitarian and atheistic regimes which came to power by violent and revolutionary means, precisely in the name of the liberation of the people. This shame of our time cannot be ignored. While claiming to bring them freedom, these regimes keep whole nations in conditions of servitude which are unworthy of mankind. Those who perhaps inadvertently make themselves accomplices of similar enslavements betray the very poor they mean to help. The class struggle as a road toward a classless society is a myth which slows reform and aggravates poverty, and injustice. Those who allow themselves to be caught up in fascination with this myth should reflect on the bitter examples history has to offer about where it leads. They would then understand that we are not talking here about abandoning an effective means of struggle on behalf of the poor for an ideal which has no practical effects. On the contrary, we are talking about freeing oneself from a delusion in order to base oneself squarely on the gospel and its power of realization, unquote. Now, that's not strong language. It's simply a clear-cut statement that these regimes are totalitarian, they are atheistic, they are propagating a myth, an evil myth. As a matter of fact, the very word evil is omitted. It's a gentle but a clear-cut statement. 
and yet within the very Vatican itself, hostility arose. The Secretary of State, Cardinal Casseroli, has issued statements disavowing it, declaring that he was not consulted, that it is a statement, even though it bore the name of the Pope as well as Cardinal Ratzinger, which endangered their very delicate negotiations with the Soviet Union. Well, at least you have to say that statement is a lot more than has been forthcoming in Protestant circles. When was the last time any major Protestant group, fundamentalist or modernist, issued a clear ringing statement against atheism and communism? Perhaps they have, and the papers have not publicized it. But I haven't seen it in the religious periodicals that I subscribe to. Meanwhile, the humanists progress in their ways. This from the newsletter, 1985, volume 4, number 15, of the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property. And I quote, just a portion of this. When Monica Kuhlman, 29, decided to stay at home to be a mother and housewife, she found herself at odds with Sweden's socialist labor system, which discourages this honorable, traditional profession. There are no laws in Sweden against being a housewife. However, the country's economic and tax system have dissolved individual wealth to such an extent that most Swedes earn salaries or, uh, at or just below the poverty line. This means that a teacher or an average industrial worker cannot support a spouse and two children on one sa salary. Most households must have two wage earners just to keep their head above water. Even then, Big Brother must supply an array of government services and grants to support a family above the poverty line. Mrs. Kuhlman applied for government welfare funds to supplement her husband's below-subsistence-level salary. She was turned down. Welfare officials told her that such aid would only be available if she found a job and put her two small children in daycare centers. She refused and appealed to the courts, who likewise refused her support unless she put herself at the labor market's disposal. I did not have children to give them away, she said, affirming her right to be a housewife. The equal rights legislation passed in the 1970s has taken its toll upon the Swedish housewife mother. In its obstinate quest to make the sexes equal, Many of the incentives to build a home life have been obliterated, unquote. Well, there's much more to the article. About 80% of the working-age women have jobs in Sweden. And if the trend continues, 
within a decade, virtually every housewife except of the few who are powerful people in the country will be working. The goal, of course, is to tax everyone to the point that they cannot support a family on a single wage, to compel thereby the women to work. This puts the children at the disposal of the state. This is the objective, and this is what is happening there. If you believe that is not going to happen in this country, I urge you to get and read an excellent book. A few minor points in it that I would not agree with, but it is superb. By Mary Pride, P-R-I-D-E. The title, The Way Home, Beyond Feminism, Back to Reality. Published by Crossway Books for $7.95. Mary Pride is a former feminist, now Christian. And she speaks plainly about what the issues are and what the goal is. She says very bluntly and documents it, it that feminism is a religion. It is an anti-Christian religion. Its purpose is to destroy Christianity. It is at war against, as they put it, Yahweh and Christ, determined to destroy them. It regards the female as divine, particularly when liberated. She gives more than a little bit of evidence on that. Some of the counsel given by feminist leaders, for example this, each woman is encouraged to keep a small altar in her home to be used for meditation and for focusing her will. At the Boston Conference, women were advised to use mirrors on their altars to represent the goddess. That way they would be continually reminded that they were the goddess and that they had divine beauty, power, and dignity. The feminist movement in Western culture is engaged in the slow execution of Christ and Yahweh. Unquote. She quotes another feminist, Mary Daly, who calls herself a Christian feminist. I quote, to put it rather bluntly, I propose that Christianity itself should be castrated by cutting away the products of super-male arrogance, the myths of sin and salvation that are simply two diverse symptoms of the same disease, unquote. From start to finish, the book is not only a telling indictment of feminism, but a very fine exposition of the biblical perspective. Particularly outstanding, I would say. I heartily commend it to you. Uh, let me add another thing here. Uh, of course, I've cited more than once that uh, studies have shown that there's a better rate of recovery by mentally disturbed people if they do, do not go to a psychologist or a psychiatrist. Well, Mary Pride has turned up other studies. 
and I quote, Dr. Eugene Levitt of the Indiana School of Medicine found that disturbed children who were not treated recovered at the same rate as disturbed children who were. A further indication of the problem was revealed in the results of the extensive Cambridge-Somerville Youth Study. The researchers found that uncounseled juvenile delinquents had a lower rate of further trouble than counseled ones. Other studies have shown that untrained lay people do as well as psychiatrists or clinical psychologists in treating patients. And the Rosenham studies indicate that mental hospital staff could not even tell normal people from genuinely disturbed ones. When psychologists rush in to help, they are not particularly successful. Unquote. An excellent book, and I strongly commend it to you. Now on to another, very briefly, Percy G. Adams, Travelers and Travel Liars, 1660-1800. to This book was first published in 1962 and reprinted not too long ago, 1980, by Dover Publications. I don't think it is in print. What the author points out is that in those years, 1660 to 1800, with a great deal of interest in the yet unexplored world, a great many people who went a short distance overseas came back and wrote all kinds of reports, purportedly scientific, about what they found in Africa, America, and the South Pacific, and elsewhere. Even men who did quite a bit of traveling came back and wrote lying accounts. So that uh, the, the amount of fraud was enormous. Well, the good question is why, when some of these people could have, could have written an excellent book, a scientifically important book, because they were qualified to write such a book. Why did they lie? I think the book was worth reading for me, and it was an interesting book, for this statement on page 10. Someone has written a creed for liars which recognizes the importance that vanity assumes in their character. It is a creed that would have been appropriate for a number of 18th century travelers. It is this. The great attraction of the lie is that it is something personal. It belongs to you. It is your work. When you lie, you intervene in the order of things. You change them. You dispose them as it seems good to you. You are a poet. You are a god. One is the master of the lie. One is the slave of the truth. Unquote. That is a very important theological statement. Man's original sin is set forth by the tempter in Genesis 3, 5, when he tempted Eve, saying, 
he shall be as God, knowing. That is, determining for yourself what constitutes good and evil. So the lie gives people an opportunity to play God, to be the creator, to reshape reality after their own image. This is the reason why some people so greatly enjoy lying. The lie gives them an opportunity to play God, to influence people by their own creation, by leading them to follow a course that is a, a lie, a misrepresentation of reality. Well, speaking of sin, on to another subject. Uh, I've passed on some delightful uh, baseball trivia to you at various times. This is not so delightful. It is a book by Bruce Nash and Alan Zullo, Z-U-L-L-O, and Bernie Ward. The title, The Baseball Hall of Shame, a wallaby book published by Pocket Books in New York in 1985. This is uh, an account of... Uh, the worst teams of all times, the most inept fielding performances, the dumbest trades ever made, cheating by players, disgraceful actions by owners, blunders by umpires, and so on and on. It also deals with some of the scoundrels who have been in baseball. And when you read about some of the uh, vicious characters who have been players, you wonder at the toleration of players. Given the fact that because they're sometimes very good players, they're not thrown out of the game or out of baseball as they should be. It's amazing that there have been fewer fights in organized baseball because some of the pitchers make no bones about wanting to maim the players they're angry with. Others who try to spike and maim fielders they are angry with, and so on. This gives you the ugly side of baseball. As the subtitle says, The True Unbelievable Chronicle of Baseball's Foulest Hours. The Calcedon staff, every week, meets for breakfast, usually on Wednesdays. And it is rarely postponed, but it will be this week because I think just about everyone but two will be out of town. And we have some delightful discussions, sometimes very serious ones. Not too long ago, Otto Scott, in the course of a discussion of some aspects of history, commented on the fact that very few people uh, are aware of the fact that Scots, English, and Irish 
played a very, very considerable role in the freedom wars of the South American peoples. That South and Central America gained its freedom from the Spanish Empire and Brazil from Portugal to a very large measure because of British naval men and British soldiers. These men went there because they believed in freedom. They were often very seriously abused and mistreated. The Latins in Latin America were in rebellion against the tyrannies of stupid and corrupt Spanish rulers. Spain was ruling its empire for the benefit of Spain. It was continuing the mercantilist uh, policies that had led to the uh, break of the North American colonies from England. The policies were so rigid that if a foreign or non-Spanish or non-Portuguese ship, in the case of Brazil, was driven by storm to a Spanish port in Latin America, every crew member was immediately imprisoned. This was the kind of treatment meted out. The purpose was to pre prevent any trade from other countries reaching Latin America. Moreover, when in South America some Spaniards brought over vines, planted vineyards, and began to produce wines that equaled and surpassed Spanish wines, what was done immediately was to order that all these vineyards be pulled up. Nothing that the colonies did could compete with anything in Spain. Moreover, they could have no market except Spain, which meant that they had to sell their goods at the prices that the Spanish traders required. Well, unfortunately, the men who spearheaded the revolt were uh, aristocrats or pretended aristocrats who were no better than their Spanish rulers. And they very seriously mistreated and took advantage of the British freedom fighters who joined them. Sometimes it was outrageous, uh, really startling how ugly they became in their efforts to defraud them after they had fought and in some instances died of their due reward. Well, to uh, give you an example, I quote from, this is The New Conquistadors by Jan Reed, published by Evans Brothers in London, 1980, and I believe now out of print, but I'm not sure. After the death of General English, his widow arrived in Kuta in 1821 to claim arrears of pay and a pension from the government. According to Ducoudre Holstein, some evil-minded persons spread a report that she was not the lawful wife of the general, 
and the vice president, Naurino, called on her with witnesses and interpreter in order to ascertain the fact. His attitude was so insulting that Devereaux intervened. This was another one of the freedom fighters. Uh, first writing a letter to Narino confirming that Mrs. English was in fact the general's wife, and later challenging him to a duel. He was thrown in prison for his pains and kept for six weeks in a dark and deep dungeon where he was confined as a criminal. Well, that's the kind of treatment they got. Over and over again, let me add, that the men who came and fought were remarkable men. Their hope was that uh, freedom and its sway could be extended. They also were practical, and they hoped that free trade would come in in the place of mercantilism and that Britain could profit. One of the colorful figures in this whole uh, venture was a remarkable Scot. This Scotchman, Lord Cochrane, uh, gives you the flavor as you read about him of the Scots of that era, and you understand why the Scots were the ones who really won the empire for Britain. He was setting to sea, and I quote, As the flotilla was about to put to sea, Lady Cochrane was horrified to see her five-year-old son Thomas run down the beach, waving his hat and shouting, Viva la Patria, and powerless to intervene, watched as he was put into a boat by her husband's flag lieutenant and ferried out to the O'Higgins, now underway. A few weeks later, the small boy was to have his first taste of action, as Cochrane relates in his Narratives of Service in the Liberation of Chile, Peru, and Brazil. When the firing commenced, I had placed the boy in my after-cabin, locking the door upon him. But not liking the restriction, he contrived to get through the quarter-galley window and joined me on deck, refusing to go down again. As I could not attend to him, he was permitted to to remain, and in a miniature midshipman's uniform, which the seaman had made for him, was busying himself in handing power to the gunners. Whilst thus employed, a round shot took off the head of a marine close to him, scattering the unlucky man's brains in his face. Instantly recovering his self-possession to my great relief, for believing him dead, I was spellbound with agony. He ran up to me, exclaiming, I'm not hurt, Papa. The shot did not touch me. Jack says the ball is not made that can kill Mama's boy. I ordered him to be carried below, but resisting with all his might, he was permitted to remain on deck during the action. Unquote. Well, given that, in a five-year-old boy, you can understand why the Scots were for generations through World War I at least, known as the Ladies from Hell.
the ladies because of their uh, kilts. It was an ugly war, the War of Liberation. There were atrocities on both sides. This is just a small book, but a good account, a general account, of what these Scots, English, and Irish did. Incidentally, Cochrane was not paid either. So much for being rewarded in this world. Another book, quite interesting, by uh, John Grigg, 1943, The Victory That Never Was, published by Hill and Wang in New York in 1980, and I believe is still in print. This is an account of uh, some of the critical decisions about the timing of the Allied invasion of France. And the author's point is that it was actually a blunder. That uh, at point after point, the planning represented stupidity. The best thing in our favor was that there was an equal amount of stupidity on the other side. It's a carefully documented book giving the data so that it is for those who want to know the historical facts and uh, the confusion and ineptness. However, this bit is very telling. The author gives a great deal about the childishness of both Roosevelt and Churchill. More interested in playing the world rulers than being responsible men. Strutting, not particularly concerned about the loss of life. This one paragraph will give you the flavor. I quote, no wives were present at Casablanca, but Churchill had the company of his son, Randolph, and Roosevelt that of two of his sons, Elliot and Franklin, while Hopkins' son was brought from the front in Tunisia. Neither of the emperors gave the impression of being weighed down with the cares of the world. On the contrary, both seemed to enjoy themselves like truant schoolboys. In the view of Churchill's Dr. Lord Moran, neither of them, in a way, had ever quite grown up, unquote. When you realize that uh, until her death, Sarah, Church, uh, Sarah Roosevelt, Franklin Delano Roosevelt's mother, had to handle the money and dole out allowances and pay the bills, for Eleanor and Franklin because they were incompetent. You realize what a shocking thing it is when this is the kind of person when our culture rises to the top. This should not surprise us. I began by dealing with the basic problem of the immorality of our time and the fact that 
we forget that it is private morality that leads to public virtue. Well, when the private morality of so many people is like that of, say, Roosevelt, irresponsible, and they want an irresponsible world, they don't want to pay the price of their sins, they want cheap forgiveness, they want the federal government and God to step in and bail them out of all their sins and shortcomings. They want cheap grace, humanistic grace, not God's grace. Well, is it any wonder we have the problems that we do? Briefly, now to go through some other books. This one, an old work from 1938 by Angelica Balabanov, My Life as a Rebel. This is a story of a woman who was an associate of Lenin and of Mussolini, of Trotsky and of others, had a part in the revolution and wound up in Hollywood as a refugee from the revolution but never lost her faith in it. And... The point is interesting because there is a clear-cut correlation between radicalism and child uh, childhood training. She was a rebellious child who was never really disciplined. She continually felt it was an act of morality on her part to be in rebellion against her mother as though somehow it constituted virtue. On very quickly to another book by Joseph Finder, F-I-N-D-E-R, Red Carpet, a New Republic, Holt, Reinhardt, and Winston book, published in 1983 and still in print. It's a book about Armand Hammer, Averill Harriman, Cyrus Eaton, Donald Kendall, and David Rockefeller, and their relations to the Soviet Union. Kendall, in case you did not recognize his name, is chairman of PepsiCo. Of course, he could have done the same, and does in passing, by the way, for the chairman of Coca-Cola. These men have nothing but contempt for the free market and for capitalism. In fact, Harriman made it clear in talking to the Soviet leaders that he found the very word capitalism odious. These men are not interested in the free market. They are interested in money and power, which are two very different things. And they are interested in gaining it by manipulating the United States and the Soviet Union for their own ends. And, of course, they, in turn, are manipulated. You have a very good account of what these men have done, their relationships, their compromises, their stupidities. This little uh, item is interesting. You recall, I believe it was in uh, Nixon's day, that when there was 
affair in Moscow. We built a World Trade Center. And uh, Finder writes, I quote, Today the World Trade Center stands across the Moscow River from the Hotel Ukraine. It resembles a Hyatt Hotel and looks like nothing else in the Soviet Union. To the chagrin of Occidental employees who occupy a small office on the 14th floor of the office building, it is known as Hammer's Trade Center. The center is dominated by a large space, uh, spacious atrium, similar to New York's City Car Center, at the center of which is a tall metallic rooster that crows with a pre-recorded squawk every hour. Russian prostitutes, having bribed their way past the guards, gather in the hotel lobby by the bar every evening. The World Trade Center is a peculiar island of capitalist decadence surrounded by the mud and debris of sluggardly socialist construction. Barely two years after it was completed, its elevators and escalators were out of commission. While the complex was built by American and Europeans, it is maintained by the Russians, who do not understand the sophisticated American equipment. It appears to be falling apart, unquote. One more item to give you a glimpse of the utter insanity of these peoples. At the end of November 1973, Hammer announced that he would make a gift to the Trade Center, an 18-hole championship golf course designed by the master golf course architect Robert Trent Jones. James Reston reacted to the announcement with gentle sarcasm, warning that a golf course might be a dangerous thing to introduce to communists. Golf is an addiction like vodka, he wrote. You can either conquer the world or learn to play golf, but you can't do both. Brezhnev accepted the offer, although the Soviet embassy in London noted durly, Mr. Brezhnev certainly does not play golf. In fact, Hammer eventually gave up the idea, perhaps because of lack of interest on the part of the Soviets, unquote. That's the insanity of sin. Very briefly, another book published in 1981 and out of print, I believe. Alan Keller was the author, Scandalous Lady, The Life and Times of Madame Rustel, New York's Most Notorious Abortionist. This is about a woman who, in the era before 1860, and then until 1878, when she was finally arrested on charges of performing illegal abortions uh, and committed suicide. Uh, she, uh, she was known as Madame Killer and was worth a very considerable fortune. She had been up to that point immune from any kind of uh, political problems. She had her payoffs. She could do as she pleased. This was a time when the average working man lived very poorly on 
a few hundred a year. But when one prominent woman wore a new party dress costing 30000 It was a time when New York was a place of great poverty as immigrants poured in. Keller's point of view is liberal. And he sees the contrast then between the poverty of these immigrants, many of whom were Irish and German, and the wealth of the upper class in New York. What he fails to see, however, is that while the conditions were horrifying, these people, given the freedom of this country, quickly improved themselves. In a few years, moved out of the slums of New York, which were very, very bad, worse than anything in Europe in those days, so that there was an upward mobility at all times. New York was a particularly corrupt city because it could take advantage of the influx of immigrants. But given the extent of freedom, it was possible for these people to move upward. There were rescue missions. There were churches working. For these things, of course, Keller has very little use. But all the same, he does give a good account of uh, what went on on that day. The draft riot, when it looked as though New York City for a while was going to secede from the Union. And in fact, there was something few people remember, uh, some sentiment towards that end. In fact, Fernando Wood, a, a very wealthy man who was mayor and uh, political power, at one time pleaded with the Common Council to secede from the Union so that the city might support and sell supplies to the Southern Confederacy. Their point was basically to make money. And of course, then with the immigrants, the war was unpopular, and at one time in the draft riots, 50,000 rioters were engaged in burning up New York, and the destruction was really fearful. It was uh, marked by attacks on blacks, men, women, and children, killing them as though it was a sport. It was uh, burning up buildings storming the Herald Tribune, or rather the Tribune building, because its editor, Horace Greeley, was in favor of the war. And in four days, over 1,200 people are known to have been killed. The draft riots were fearful. Well, our time is up. It's been... Good to share these items of interest with you, and we'll continue with some more in two weeks. Thank you for listening.